If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 50. Luke 24, beginning in verse 50, and we'll conclude the Gospel of Luke this morning. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Father, I pray that our response to you would be the same as we see the disciples' response to you. Father, as we see your Christ's hand lifted in blessing his own, Father, I pray that worship would fill our hearts, that joy would fill our hearts, and that our hands would be lifted up in blessing back to Christ. Father, I pray that you would do this work in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at these last three verses, we see in the first verse what Jesus did. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. That's what we looked at last week, how we can't even comprehend the glory of the blessing of Christ, the way it benefits us as Christians. Paul says it in Ephesians 1, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we see in verse 51 that he parted from them, that while he blessed them, in the act of blessing them, in his last act on this earth, as he was carried up in his body, he ascended into heaven. And we know from the scriptures that he sat down at the right hand of God, that all authority has been given to Christ, that he is the king, he is the son that God has chosen to sit on David's throne. And this morning, we're going to look at the response. We're going to look at verses 52 and 53. While they worshipped him, or, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so last week we asked two questions. Do you know just how blessed you are in Christ? And secondly, do you know the blessing of the ascension? And we looked at five aspects of the ascension. And this morning we're going to begin with the third question that was in your notes last week, and that is, do you know that Jesus is 
God. Look at verse 52. And they worshipped him. That was their response. They worshipped him. They've seen the resurrected Christ. They now know who he is because he opened the scriptures to show them from the whole Bible who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is God himself. They now know how to understand his work on the cross, that he was dying in the place of sinners, that it was necessary that he should die, that he was going to take his throne by becoming a servant, becoming obedient even unto death. They finally get it. They understand the purpose of all things, the purpose of the universe, the purpose of their lives, the purpose of God. They know who God is. They finally get it. And their response is to worship Him. This is Luke at the very end of his gospel showing that Jesus is God, that Jesus is divine. How do we know that? Isaiah 42, 8 says, the Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. We know that the only one to be worshipped is God. Right? This is the first of the commandments. There is no other God. There is no other one worthy to be worshipped except God himself. That's why back in Luke 4, when Satan was tempting him, in verse 6, tempting Christ in the wilderness... He says, if you'll worship me, all this will be yours. I'll give you the world. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He says, I won't worship you, Satan, for the worship is only for God. John in Revelation 19, in his vision, in verse 10, it says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. And this is an angel. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In Acts 10, Cornelius bows down to worship Peter. When Peter entered, this is Acts 10.25, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him, but Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, for I too am a man. Yet Jesus is worshipped. And he doesn't stop them from worshipping him. 
because he is God. This isn't the first time he's worshipped. Matthew 14, 33, after Peter walked on water, we read in verse 33, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And he never stopped their worship. The blind man that was healed by Christ in John 9, we read in John 9, 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. In Matthew 28, 9, we read, and behold, Jesus met them. The resurrected Christ met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. The writer of Hebrews records in verse 6 of chapter 1, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Do you know that Jesus is God? If Jesus is not God, he cannot die for your sins. He cannot pay for your sins because the one with whom we've sinned against is God himself. And a mere man cannot pay the price for offending the eternal God. Yes, this substitute must be a man, but he must be God as well. He must have the same worth of the one who was offended. That's why Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him because he is truly God and truly man. And he's worthy of your worship, and he's worthy of my worship, and he's worthy of your life, and he's worthy of my life to be worshiped with all that we are. The rest of Scripture clearly teaches the deity of Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was. Well, what was before the beginning? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. That's what makes God, God is the fact that he had no beginning. And Genesis 1.1 begins with in the beginning, God. John 1.1 begins, in the beginning, was. This is the to be verb in the imperfect tense, which means it already was in the past. He already was in the past. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Proston theon. Face to face with God. The Word that was there before the beginning was face to face with God. In intimate fellowship with God. And the Word was God. That's not telling us who He is. That's telling us what He is. He's God. So in the beginning, you have the Word that's face to face with 
God the Father. We read on in John, and we know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son from the Father who had no beginning, who was in fellowship with Him forever. He's worthy to be praised. In fact, in 1 John 1 and 2, we get this beautiful picture. He, he just adds to the intimacy of the Son and the Father. He says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this is Jesus, the life was made manifest. And we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, Proston Patera, and was made manifest to us this eternal life that they touched that was with them, that was from the beginning, that was there before the beginning, was face to face with the Father or in the lap of the Father. And He is God. And we could spend sermon after sermon after sermon showing the deity of Christ. If you've ever read through the Gospel of John, John does this in so many different ways. John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Glorify me in your own presence. What a statement. With the glory that I had with you, with you before the world existed. That's why we're in awe when we read Philippians 2 and it says, who though he was in, in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who was face to face with the Father the Son, face to face with the Father, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, taking on human flesh. He left heaven to take on flesh, the humility to do this. And not only that, but when He takes on flesh, to willingly take on death on your behalf. And not only that, but the most shameful death known to man, hung on a cross, naked, crucified as a criminal between two criminals. No wonder Charles Wesley wrote words like this. He left the Father's throne above so free, so infinite is grace. 
emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He is the image of the invisible God. In him, the whole fullness deity of deity dwells bodily, Colossians 2.9. And so they worshiped him. They worshiped him. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples to pray to him, to ask for things in his name, and that he would answer those prayers. Who ought we to pray to except God alone? Do you know that Jesus is God? Secondly, do you know the joy of Christ? They understood the gospel, finally. They understood it. And there was a result to understanding it, to having saving faith. There was a result that came from that. Do you know the joy of Christ? Look at what it says. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This isn't just like being happy because your circumstances have gone right. But they returned with great joy. Think of all they've just understood. They've just been promised the Holy Spirit, the eternal presence of Christ with them, the Helper. It's better that he ascends to the right hand of God if the Helper will come. They've just understood these things. And great joy overtook them. I want to give you five aspects of great joy that we find in the Scripture. All right? The first one is this. Supernatural joy or great joy is a hopeful joy. It's a joy that doesn't run out of hope. It's a joy that the yabbats can't touch. We're cynical people. We're doubting people. Even when we're faced with some of the glories of God, our hearts tend to say, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? Or what, what, what about this? This great joy cannot be touched by our yeah, buts or what ifs. It can't be. Galatians 5.5 5. Paul speaks of this hopeful joy. For through the Spirit, you see it's supernatural, it's spiritual. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, true joy has a hope in it. 
And it's the type of hope that's empowered by the Holy Spirit through faith. He says it this way in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. All right. If you're a container that can be filled and you've been filled with all joy, how much more can you get in? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Do you see the principle? When you believe the gospel, when you believe it, when you trust in it, when you cling to it, the Holy Spirit powerfully comes with the hope of God and with full joy to the soul. Now, I know what you're saying is, I'm a Christian and I don't feel like I have fullness of joy all the time. And I don't feel like I have hope all the time. And the operative word there is what? Feel. When you don't feel it, have you lost the hope of Christ? Do you not have access to the joy of Christ? What's happening when you lose hope and when you lose joy? You're not believing the truthfulness of the gospel, the good news towards you in Christ. You see that? Yes, your experience is hope comes and goes and joy comes and goes, but the reality is, is hope never goes and joy never goes. You just have access to it when you believe in the truths of the gospel. When you believe God's word, the Holy Spirit comes powerfully to your soul and gives you the hope and joy. Listen to this. May Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So they come back with great joy that if they lose their job that week, it can't be touched. If a family member dies that week, that joy that they're coming back with can't be touched. It's a supernatural joy. It's an untouchable joy. It's a reconciled joy, secondly. It's a hopeful joy. It's a reconciled joy. You say, yeah, but Sam, you don't know how I've sinned. Maybe you've committed adultery on your spouse. Well, there was a man named King David that also committed adultery and then had Bathsheba's husband put on the front lines and murdered. You might think all joy for that guy is gone for all eternity. 
But turn with me to Psalm 51. And David is looking for Christ. He knows Christ is there. He doesn't know him by name, but he knows God. He knows God is a God of grace. He knows God is a God <coughs> who forgives iniquity. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Now notice he, he doesn't say, have mercy on me, O God, because I'm cleaning up my life and I'm getting it together and I'm going to earn back what I did. That's not what he appeals to. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, if you want to find me guilty, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I know my sin, it's before me, he says. But according to your mercy and your steadfast love, pardon my sin, he says. And then he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, David isn't proud. David's saying, if you wash me, I'll be white. There's some of you that say, you can't wash me. I'm too sinful. All that I did, even if you try to wash me, I won't be white as snow. But that's not David. David believes in abundant mercy and steadfast love and forgiveness that goes beyond what our minds can imagine. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Look at what he says. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. <coughs> Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Look at verse 12. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. This great joy that they had was the joy of understanding that their sins can be blotted out 
because of the work he just did on the cross. It was accomplished. His ascension proved it. His resurrection proved that he was accepted. It's going to be proven again as the Holy Spirit comes upon them just as he says it will in, in just a, not too many days after this, 10 days later. And so it's a reconciled joy. Because if you're living, facing the wrath of God, there is no joy. You might have a good day today, but the wrath of God is coming for all eternity. If you don't believe you can be reconciled in Jesus Christ, you might as well give up on joy right now. All you have is a fearful expectation of judgment. But joy comes from knowing Christ, the Savior, the mediator, the man for us. Third, this great joy is a selfless joy. It's joy as we become less. That's, that's one of the greatest aspects of this joy. Look at John 3, 29. This is John the Baptist. And his disciples are saying, hey, they're going after Jesus over there. We need to stop this. And here's what John says. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which is John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John knows who he is. John knows the bridegroom is here. His joy is complete. It's complete. And what does he do with this complete joy? What effect does it have on his life? Look at what it says. He must increase, but I must decrease. This great joy the disciples are finding is in a death to themselves. No longer arguing who's the greatest, who's the best. He's the best, and he's here, and he's the man for us. And so... Finally, I can quit feeling ripped off and I can quit trying to be noticed in the eyes of people and he can increase. I can quit looking in the mirror and hating what I look at and I can look at him and have joy. This is the joy of the guy who found the treasure in Matthew 13:44 The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Listen, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. He loses everything. He sells it all. Why? Cuz he has all he needs. He goes to buy the field. 
And if he has Christ, he doesn't need the rest. And so there's a freedom in this eternal joy. See, if you have to get recognition and you need people to appreciate you and, and you need material things, then joy is not going to fill your heart. It won't happen. But if you look to Christ and say, he must increase, I must decrease, all the promises for you are untouchable. The yabots can't get to him. Which brings this fourth point is this great joy is untouchable joy. Jesus illustrated this in John 16, 21. Because he's about to go and they're about to become really sad. And he says, yeah, but that's not going to last. He says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one. No one. It's an untouchable joy that can't be taken from you, which means it's not circumstantial joy. It's not, yeah, but today might be a bad day. Or yeah, but this person said something to me and it hurt my feelings, my joy's gone. Or I've been rejected from this group of people. Young people, little children. Have you ever been playing with friends and all of a sudden, two or three of them, you can tell, are trying to get away from you, and, and, and you're left all alone. Everywhere you go, they go to the next room, and your feelings are hurt. There's a sense where your joy goes away. But if you know Jesus, His Holy Spirit is with you, no one can take that joy from you. No one can take the joy of knowing Christ from you. It's an untouchable joy because it's connected to the Spirit of Christ that is with us. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Romans 14.17 says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. If you're all about keeping legalistic rules, and that's what you're about, that's what your family's about, that's what your crew's about, I don't want to hang out with you because there's not joy there. There's not the joy of the Spirit there. Let's, let, let's make much of us as we make fun of people that aren't like us. That's not the joy of the kingdom of God, which is of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says this, you became imitators of us 
of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So as he writes to these believers, he's thanking God because he sees as they receive the word, they get persecution. And as they get persecution, they have joy of the Holy Spirit, which he knows they have the supernatural joy that accompanies those who know Jesus Christ. It's an untouchable joy. Even persecution doesn't touch it. And lastly, it's a full joy. It's a complete joy. I know this is somewhat redundant, but it's just helpful looking at this. Look at John 16, 23. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. And so they haven't been looking to Christ as though he's God asking of him. But if they ask in his name, if they ask according to his will, their joy will be complete because he's happy to answer their prayers. John 15, 9, the chapter before. As the Father loved me, so I've loved you. Wow. Do you know Jesus loves you that much? As the Father loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I've kept my commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus is teaching them how to have the joy that's in him, in themselves, so that they can have fullness of joy. And the fundamental commandment that Christ left them is to believe in him, to put their trust in him. The person who puts all their hope in Christ can have access to the fullness of joy. John 17, 13, the high priestly prayer, he says, but now I'm coming to you, John 17, 13, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak to you in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 1 John 1, 4 says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You realize? Did you realize so much of your salvation had to do with you sharing the same joy that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share within themselves, that you can share in that with them? Second John 12 says this, Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. One of the sweet gifts that God gives us is right now we can't stand face-to-face with Christ or God, but even especially as we share in this 
communion that we're going to share in a few moments together. Christ is in you. The Spirit is in you. And so John says, our joy will be complete when we share time face-to-face with one another and love one another and minister to one another. Do you know the joy of Christ? And finally, do you know the continual worship of Christ? Look at what verse 53 says of Luke 24. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So now the blessings reversed. Christ was blessing them. They worshiped him, were filled with joy. And now they're in the temple blessing God. God. So last week we said when God blesses his people, he bestows on them some temporal gift or some spiritual gift. So how do we bless God? How do we give God gifts when he owns everything? When all that we are is owed to him? What does it look like for us to bless God? It's an important question to ask. Reminds me of the parable in Luke 17 when Jesus heals 10 lepers. Tells them to go to the temple and present themselves. And one of them, when he realizes he's healed, what does he do? He comes back to Christ. And he shows up to worship him and to thank him. And Jesus says, where's the other nine that I healed? The way we bless God is we recognize what he's done for us by praising him and thanking him and admitting it's not us, it's him. In fact, in Psalm 50, I love this. If you have your Bibles, turn here. Psalm 50 Look at verses 8 through 15 with me. Here God says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So that's their gifts to God. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and a cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Essentially, he's saying, this isn't what I want. You think you're feeding me? You think I'm needy? That's how you're doing this in your heart when you bring these sacrifices? Listen to what he says. Take note of this because this is how you need to live your life. This is what God's called us to. Look at what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you shall glorify me. 
He says, thank me. And then when you get in trouble, don't do it in your own strength. Come to me. That's what glorifies me. That's how you worship me. Humble yourself. Have a contrite heart to that's the one whom I will look. Listen, Christian, we can do this. We can admit that we can't do it and we need him and give him thanks. Can we not? We offend him when we do it in our own strength and we offend him when we grumble. You ever wonder why God's so harsh with grumblers? The opposite of being thankful is having a grumbling heart, feeling ripped off by God. And so as we hit that point of conviction, what are you going to do? Do you see grumbling in your own heart? What are you going to do? You're going to clean yourself up? Are you going to go to the Christ who has died for your sins and paid for them? And are you going to thank God then for the forgiveness that you get because he can actually wash you white as snow? Israel forgot God. We don't have time to look at all the examples. Deuteronomy 32, 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God that gave you birth. How do you bless God? You don't forget. You don't forget what Christ did for you. You don't forget the new birth in Christ. You thank him. You continually praise him by remembering who you are and what he's done for you in Christ. And with that comes contentment. Do you ever think you can give God a gift by being content? Contentment is like a cousin to thankfulness, isn't it? Trusting that God has given us what we need and what's good for us, even the hard things. Do you know the continual worship of God? The charge of this message is worship Christ in the joy of his inexhaustible blessings. You won't run out if you want to go and study about how you're blessed in Christ. You will not run out of material. You cannot get to the end of that. You cannot exhaust that, and we won't for all eternity. And if you're sitting here saying, this Christ sounds great, how can I get in on being reconciled to God and having the type of joy that the world can't have? You need to recognize who you are. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. For God so loved the world, what, does he, what did he do? He sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you'll receive Christ by faith and say, that's my only hope before a holy God. I've been trying to do it on my own. I thought good people get in. I repent of that. I need him. Tell him. Tell him you need him. Tell him you need his salvation and cling to him. And the joy of Christ will fill your hearts. And the spirit will come into your life and you'll have new taste buds 
and new desires.